This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Toronto Metropolitan University doesn't quite roll off the tongue, but as our Jane Brown pointed out, it's generic enough not to offend anyone. Is that what the administration of the university formerly known as Ryerson was going for? Here's the university president, Mohammed Lashmi. They came up with a very short list that was submitted to me uh, uh, the beginning of this month. And today I'm very pleased that uh, we have uh, a name that uh, we believe can unite our community and also can represent the values and aspiration of our entire community. And what do some of the students think? I uh, don't think it's as uh, iconic as Ryerson. Might uh, be a bit of a tongue twister. I don't know. It's a good change, but also kind of a hard one to take in. Metropolitan, it just sounds a little off. It sounds a little, you know, Ryerson had a name to it, but because they chose the new one, I don't think it's good at all. Well, of course, this comes after a huge controversy over removing the names of problematic historical figures from the public sphere. Edgerton Ryerson was instrumental in the creation of the notorious residential school system. So what do you think of the new name and the fact that this saga has finally just about reached its conclusion? The government has to formalize this before it comes becomes formally formal. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Indigenous elder Kat Krieger, who works extensively in secondary and post-secondary institutions, politics and public administration professor Dr. Patrice Dutille, history professor Dr. Ronald Stagg, both from the newly christened Toronto Metropolitan University, and let's begin with them. Like, how do you, how do you feel being introduced that way, Doctor Dutil? Well, I mean, you know, I think we should call it TMZ. You know, Toronto Metropolitan Zoomer University. <laughs> um, no, I mean, Toronto Metropolitan was was on the short list. A lot of people thought it would be either the city university of Toronto or Toronto Metropolitan or something benign like that. Uh, I'm not surprised by the choice, but, you know, it's the predictable outcome of a broken process. What, what more can I say? Dr. Stagg, I mean, does when we introduce you that way, does it have the gravitas of an important educational institution? <laughs> I must admit it's very bland. And again, I think that's what they went for. Something that identifies it with Toronto, uh, but won't offend anybody. And the whole idea of taking Edgerton Ryerson's name off was t- to get to a point where nobody would be offended. Cat uh, Krieger, what do you think? Well, you know, many <clears throat> many names have been changed with the um, through colonization, of course, and um, or will have been changed. TMU kind of. Sounds neat to me. It just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> and I was recognizing, uh, you know, it's one of the students saying it's hard to take in how this changes. And I imagine what it must have been like a long time ago when many things were renamed and how it was for people to, to take that or accept that. So I, I kind of look at it as a new beginning. Um, you know, what things remind us of and what what should it remind us of. So it's you know, for me, I've seen so many things, including my own name, change over the years. So I'm accepting of this. I'm not sure what we want to be reminded to when we walk through the doors of higher education and what does it inspire when we walk into that place. 
Hmm. I, I'm sure that uh, it'll won't take long uh, before people come up with a nickname. I don't know if it'll be TMU. You know, depending on on how you say it, it could sound a bit like an insult. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> TMU, <laughs> kind of like that. Uh, and I don't know if um, I mean yes. Uh, there are a lot of, uh, I think, good arguments for renaming it, but going for something just so bland, I don't know, I don't know about that. Um, Dr. Dutil, you were talking about a flawed process. How so? Oh, the whole thing was, was, was completely, uh, completely flawed. From the very beginning, the administration wanted the name change, and it organized uh, a fake process. Uh, to move it there, um, you know, the everything from creating a fake committee of of people who had absolutely no idea of what the Ryerson legacy was, uh, that put together a report that came out last year and that had absolutely nothing to say against Egerton Ryerson. There was nothing to say. The the uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission had nothing to say against Egerton Ryerson, uh, but there was a feeling that. A small minority uh, of faculty were very unhappy with the name and what it represented, and administration ran the process to drive to that goal. We are, we, you know, the Ryerson name didn't mean a whole lot to a lot of people, uh, which is really unfortunate because Ryerson was a very important man in the creation of the educational system in Ontario. His presence, uh, you know, touched every aspect of education in our province, from elementary school to teacher training to university creation to respect for uh, rights of minorities, everything, libraries, everything he touched. He was condemned for a four-letter, a four-page letter, uh, and, you know, there is no way he was the architect of residential schools, but, you know, he stands today condemned, and the university has gotten rid of his reputation, which is very unfortunate. Dr. Stagg, do you agree with that? Oh, completely. Um, I have a piece coming out online in the Dorchester Review soon, and what I said in there was they should have been up front. The, 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 the committee that did this should have been up front and just said, we do not want any Euro-Canadian white man or settler, as uh, the term is now used, uh, as the the symbol of this university. Now we could have had an open debate. You know, would this help with reconciliation? Instead, they came up with this nonsense. Uh, eventually, they came down and said, no, he wasn't responsible for residential schools. As Patrice said, the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission said the same thing. But this idea has been put out there um, on a sign beside his statue, which was vandalized, um, saying he was responsible for residential schools. And that's what everybody believes now. It's not true. Well, well, there you go. Um, I have to say, myself included, I want to get Kat Krieger's view of this. Yeah, and it's, you know, I, th- I think when we move quickly on things, maybe we don't have enough information. So I'm, I'm not saying pro or con here, but the idea of who was this person, what did they contribute, and does the good outweigh the possible bad? Or is it uh, a time when things are changing again? As I said some time back, many names changed in this area. And are we moving forward with this actual name change? I'm one with, with you know, uh, looking for something poetic or, or uh, um, with meaning to it. And a lot of the Indigenous languages have a very descriptive component to them. And is this actually describing what we want to describe? And are we vilifying somebody um, with with reality or not? And personally, I don't know enough about Mr. Ryerson to say yay or nay on that. I can only go by what I hear sometimes. And if I don't hear enough, I'm not willing to jump on board immediately and say, yeah, this was a bad guy or this was a good guy. A, a very refreshing take, I might add. And I, I think that what one of the professors said is, is, and, uh, with also with what you say, Kat, is that, you know, 
maybe it was an idea to change the name uh, without saying that he was a bad guy if he wasn't. But uh, let's hear from a few people who are waiting patiently on the lines. We've got Jake in Toronto. Hi, Jake. Hello. How are you today, Libby? Fine. You're on the air. Go ahead. I, uh, I'm a student. I, I just don't like it. I mean, sure. I don't know enough history about Ed, Ed Ryerson, to be very honest with you, about all the residential schools, but I just, it seems like they're pinning everything onto this one thing and virtue signaling so damn hard, like from my perspective on the outside, because there are a lot of other individuals who have been involved in like the government of Canada at that. I mean, the church, numerous other places, people have been involved in the atrocities that happened over like last hundred years. And it just seems, yeah, like a bland attempt to, you know, you know, just virtue signal. Because like you said, I, as a student, at least like educate us a little bit more than on like what's happened and stuff for it to even change. But to come out of nowhere and then just choose like no name, brand name, like, uh, it feels like there was no effort put in. Just like how they came out through an indigenous holiday, our government. And then we found out about everything that happened after that. It's like these virtue signaling attempts are just, I don't know. It's all for show, in my opinion. And oh. it's just like, okay, Jake, thanks for that. Let's go to Stephen Barry. Hi, Steve. Hi, how are you? Uh, Libby, I disagree uh, with them uh, changing the name. But since they got started and got accepted, I have a question. Why don't we uh, go a little further? Instead of just getting the originator of saying that he started elementary schools, uh, residential schools, why don't we go after the uh, prime ministers uh, if they have schools or whatever named after them that enacted the, uh, the schools and signed off on them? Oh, people are going after them as well. <laughs> don't you worry about that. Steve? Yeah, because, you, you know, you can't hurt just one person. And I, I find it hard how we have, how everybody's trying to re, uh, uh, change history or whatever. But sometimes the facts are not true. Well, yeah, that uh, that goes to a lot of things. Thanks, Steve, for your call. I mean, uh, yes, I mean, they, there are people who are trying to take down statues of our first prime minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, changed the name of schools named after him. I think one has already been changed. Uh, oh, it's Yes. Patrick is here. Um, actually, uh, there's been three or four name, uh, uh, McDonald names that have been removed, and most of the statues that were standing three years ago are now gone. There's only one statue left that's standing, and it's one on Parliament Hill. So they're gone. Um, but I want to, can I address the point made by the young student about, you know, whether uh, Ryerson was at all associated with atrocities? He was emphatically not. Emphatically not. Edgerton Ryerson was a friend of the indigenous people. He spoke Ojibwe. He defended them provincially, nationally, internationally. He did absolutely nothing wrong. He did nothing wrong. The media keeps identifying him as one of the architects of the residential school system. And it I apologize that I did too. So you did. You did. I I'm did. Really sorry. It is emphatically wrong. Everything from, C from the CBC to CP24 identify Edgerton Ryerson as an architect of the residential system. It is the big lie. I'm sorry, I get carried away. Well, okay, so <laughs> so who was the architect? There is no one architect. This idea of residential schools came with the Europeans when they first settled. And MacDonald created uh, residential schools, Indian residential schools in the West in 1883, Egerton Ryerson had been dead for two years already. I mean, he was not involved in any of it. He wrote a four-page report in 1847. Ron Stagg can tell you all about it. And it, all he did was recommend schools that would combine knowledge and practical knowledge. That's what we aspire to today at Ryerson. And for, for Indigenous specifically? For indigenous, yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay, well, let's ask Dr. Stagg. Uh, tell me about that four-page report. Yes, uh, Edgerton was asked by the Indian Department, which was run uh, by the British government, to come up with a cur possible curriculum for a series of industrial schools, uh, which he did. And these schools were designed to 
train people in farming. The the ability to sort of move around, hunt, fish, and whatever was slowly disappearing. Indigenous people recognized that. There was a meeting in 1846 at Orillia, and the representatives there said, yes, please, teach us about farming so that we can go on with our lives. And that was the purpose of this school, of these schools, which was to train farmers. The vast majority of people in the colony at the time were farmers. So they were trying to train them to be equal to everybody else. In fact, the, the civil servant who asked Ryerson said that. He said, you know, there's some people who are against this. We've got to get it going fast because this will allow indigenous people to be the equal of their white brethren. So this was not about assimilation. This was about helping indigenous people adapt. Uh, Kat Krieger, what's your reaction to that? Um, you know, one thing that strikes me is that it's helping them adapt, but uh, it's adapting, uh, you know, to a very different way of life. It is certainly a different way of life. And, you know, with with the um, with all the time that's passed, we see that maybe adapting to that style of life is kind of you know hurt the land, et cetera, resource extraction. There's all those components, but there's also you know, and I don't quite look at myself as an elder, or maybe as an indigenous philosopher might be a, a title, but um, the idea that you know some of the old teachings talk about adaptability. You know, the coyote teaches us that that we can adapt to the environment that we're in. And this is necessary for survival sometimes, and it is difficult. Um, and there are so many ramifications of residential school, colonization, assimilation, et cetera, that jump in there right away. But I, I myself was a student at Ryerson for quite a while. And for me, going there, I never thought of the name of the place. I thought more about what was the place doing while I was there and how is it helping me, and it helped me a great deal. So I had to be grateful for that. Um, that that opportunity, but the idea of you know, I, I guess the change that we obviously have to be part of. Um, if you're not part of it, then there's that problem with survival. And survival was such that things were changing, um, much like the weather or climate or land changes that we need to adapt to that. You know, I was in Berlin a while ago, and I came across these brass plaques in the ground. They were called uh, in English uh, stumbling stones. And they made note of individuals, uh, Jewish individuals that maybe had passed away or suffered atrocities in that particular spot. And I thought, with the idea of, of a name or a place, and you know, I've heard my colleagues on the call today say that the information we've been given is somewhat wrong. So it's, it's hard to know what information source that we should depend on for understanding something that's happened. You know, in today's uh, media, that is so difficult. You know, you mentioned uh, in Berlin, I guess it's now these stones. When I was there a number of years ago, there were these kind of cylinders on the street yeah. that told the story. I mean, uh, my thought is I don't know the utility of having names of places where nobody knows, nobody has a clue about what it refers to. And, um, yeah, it it would be... I guess, better if, you know, if we're maintaining place names, if there's something like that to talk about who these people were, though, I guess uh, the right to say what it was can be uh, just as controversial. Uh, Dr. Dutil, I mean, what do you think of that? I think... Well, I mean, I'm a a guy who stops for historical plaques in the middle of a highway. I mean... I love historical plaques. I think the whole place should be plastered with historical fact, plaques. Um, but we're moving away from the issue here. I mean, you know, yeah. we, we, the fact is, I mean, I've been at Ryerson for only 16 years. Uh, Ron has been there a lot longer. But in all my years, I never heard anybody ever talk about the legacy of Egerton Ryerson. Nobody ever talked about what this man contributed to our education, to the philosophy of education. Not a word. Just not a word. So, you know, we failed in that regard. The, the leadership of Ryerson failed in that regard. The, the provincial government that should have been involved here, 
You know, we have other names at universities. What's going to happen to Carleton University? It's named after a colonial figure. What's going to happen to Brock University? It's named after a colonial figure. We have Queen's University, which is the ultimate colonial <laughs> figure. Are they all going to go? Laurier University? Surely that name is going to be on the cutting block. What we're doing here is systematically cutting ourselves off from our roots. And that's a really sad thing. We're a new society. We're in the new world. And yet we do have roots. And now we're just cutting them off systematically. And I think that that just impoverishes our culture. And as a university, as a university, as, as an institution that has been designed to teach, to educate, to impart wisdom, we have failed miserably in that regard. Uh, you know, back to Ryerson, and uh, you say you've been there for 16 years. So I'm thinking back two university presidents who uh, I knew well and would not have any, any, any political correctness uh, about him. So um, how do you explain this going back 16 years that there was no nod to the legacy? No acknowledgement of who Ryerson was, his philosophy of education. I don't know. I mean, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I didn't know these guys personally. Um, you know, they're, they're clearly not, they were not historians, but you have to tell the, you have to tell the story of the place. And we just don't do that. We don't, we don't do that as Canadians. We don't do that. We don't do it. We don't teach it to our children. We don't, you know, there's no, there's no reinforcement. And so therefore, you know, if, if we, if the, if the, the ground is so shallow that you can't sink any root, then anything can be said. Anything can be said. Any accusation can be leveled. Because nobody cares about history. And if we don't care about history, then we will forget. We will forget the good, and we will forget the bad. And forgetting is a terrible thing. I think we can agree on that. We never want to forget the good or the bad. Uh, but that's the situation we're in now. Uh, Dr. Stagg, what do you think? The point, particular point, there are people after whom things are named who did some good things and some bad things. In the case of Edgerton Ryerson, he didn't do the bad things he's accused of. And, uh, Kat, if I may call you that, um, sure. where you find the truth is you look at the facts, and you look at what those facts mean. What this task force did was to avoid certain facts, to take others and twist them to get the result they wanted. And that's the issue. If you actually look at what Edgerton Ryerson did and said, he did not do what he's accused of. And it's very important, as Patrice is saying, to tell the whole story, whether it's somebody who was basically uh, innocent or it's somebody who did good things and bad things. We really have to talk about who Canadians were and who Canadians are and tell the truth. Okay, uh, we have, uh, let's take a couple of calls. People are waiting. We've got, uh, we've got Steve in Brampton. Hi, Steve. Oh, hello, Libby. Uh, I love the panel today, and I would say I'm, you know, 100% in agreement. But I, I actually thought there might be some parallels drawn between this discussion on Ryerson and the, what I consider to be completely misguided effort to rename Dundas Street. And I believe I listened to your very show where you had uh, historians and a member of the Dundas family, if I remember, and almost disproved, once again, the whole basis for that renaming exercise. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. Uh, I, I mean, there are a couple of, of, of people who have things named after them that were really bad guys, and it's escaping me. But Dundas wasn't. <laughs> As far as I know, absolutely. I'm thinking he That's was a true. hero because he was rejected and then said, okay, if I can't get it done today, then I'm going to get it done another way, but it's going to take me a bit longer. I mean, that's what I took. This away is from getting the rid of slavery, yes. And uh, so that one, I think, is quite misguided. And there's, I, yeah, Young Street, he was a bad guy. And, and I'm, I have to say that. Um, I'm, I'm very disappointed with John Tory and some of these subjects. I really felt that he would, he was strong enough to say, can we take, have a mature discussion, please, folks? 
I don't mind doing things that are valid and warranted, but can we please really focus on the things? Let's get all the facts on the table, have a serious adult conversation. And at the end of the day, if the evidence is overwhelming, I will accede to your request. But this is silly. Cat? Hello? You know, I have to... Uh... I have to agree with the concept of let's get all the facts on the on the table so that we have an understanding that we're not just running with the first thing we hear. Um, you know, we, we look at Twitter and Facebook and all kinds of things are said. Just making um, everything much worse in terms of, uh, quote, facts. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. It's almost, uh, you know, people can be villainized or victim, victimized. Uh, and even, I hope, within the legal system, if, if you're in a courtroom and somebody brings in new evidence that sways a, a possible decision, that, that information and that evidence, we'll call it, comes from a place of truth. And old style, you'll hear from some of the indigenous uh, peoples where uh, when a decision was made, it was based on consensus. And that idea being the truth was laid out, the, the truth was spoken then people came to a decision based on truth. So if what I'm hearing is that the truth isn't being told, the facts aren't being laid out the way they actually are, then are we making a decision based on something that is not correct? So my, even just in this few minutes listening to the others talk, I'm going, hmm, am I missing a lot of stuff that I don't know? And I hadn't quite drawn an opinion on whether or not a place or space should be renamed. Certainly if a name is taken away and it's just replaced by something colonial, maybe that's not quite right. Maybe it needs to go back to that original name. But in the other sense, how do we honor those, our ancestors, wherever they're from? Um, if we wait a few years and find one, something they did wrong and say that person is, is, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't be respected. And trying to balance that idea of what have we done that's good? Have we learned from a mistake? And have we, do we have the facts on the table? So I'm hesitant, even as an Indigenous person, to see something change until I, I know that it's correct. Can I get in just for a second? Sure. Yes, uh, we're, st we're, we're starting to run out of time. I'm just putting that out there. I, I'm, I'm yep. going to wrap things up soon because I have to. I'll be very quick. There is a tendency these days to come up with a conclusion and look for facts that will justify it. Mm. That's what's been done with Henry Dundas. That's what's been done with Edgerton Ryerson. So this is what we want them to be. We'll find the facts somehow. Well, yeah, there's just too much uh, uh, wokeness going around, and, and uh, the people who want these changes are extremely vociferous, and I guess it can be easier to say yes. Uh, but uh, I'm looking at the clock. We're out of time. I'm going to give each of you 30 seconds. Callers, Free For All Friday is coming up, and I'm sure we will still be talking about this. So uh, let us start with uh, Patrice Dutil. What would I'll you simply, like to leave us with? I'll simply say that today Toronto is poorer as a result of the loss of the name of Ryerson. It was an ornament to our city, and we've lost it. Ronald Stagg. It's time for people to make a fuss. This rebranding is going to cost hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars, and it's not necessary. So the public should get aroused about this, uh, the fact that this man was convicted when he wasn't guilty. Cat Krieger, last 20 seconds to you. you know, the, the first thought that comes to mind is not responding to the concept of what is nowadays cyberbullying. And I don't want to see anybody bullied in any way, shape, or form. Um, how can we welcome people back into the form, uh, the, the, the community? How can we balance things out? Um, and at the same time, if, if somebody needs to be called out for something, can we do that? Okay. Uh, that's all the time we have. And as I said, Free For All Friday is coming up, people, and we will still be talking about this then. Thank you for a very enlightening half hour, Dr. Patrice Dutille, Dr. Ronald Stagg, and Kat Krieger. Bye-bye. Thank you, Libby. Thanks. We are going to take our first break. And when we come back, those new details we were waiting for from last year's census are out. And there are some very important findings about 
the older demographic, and we will get into that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. This morning, we got some more details from last year's census, and it shows Canada's seniors over the age of 85 are among the fastest growing age groups in the country. Between 2016 and 2021, that demo grew by 12%, which is more than twice as much as the overall growth of the Canadian population at 5.2%. And the overday 85 demo has more than doubled since 2001 and is, is expected to triple by 2046. Also, more than one in five Canadians of working age are close or is close to retirement. That's an all-time high that will have major ripple effects on the country's economy, labor market, and healthcare system. Though on that note, I have to point out that if on the one hand you're looking at these numbers, which highlight increasing longevity, then on the other, the definition of working age needs to be bumped up as well. So people, uh, what do you think? And uh, does it make you say more nervous about getting older, looking at how many of us will be needing some form of help, most likely. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now let's go to Doug Norris, Senior Vice President and Chief Demographer at Environics Analytics, and David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP. Hi, guys. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Libby. Good to be with you, Libby. So, Doug, this is no surprise that the over 85s are growing. Do you agree with me that maybe uh, this nervousness about so-called working age needs a little bit of a refresh? Well, it certainly uh, is the case that the uh, many people today are delaying retirement and working uh, well into their late 60s and 70s. Um, so that certainly needs to be taken into account. Uh, it was interesting, though, during the pandemic, uh, there was a little bit of pullback in that delayed retirement. I think some people may have decided uh, enough. So uh, we'll have to see where the future trends go. Uh, David, what's your view of that? Because I, I, I've heard about both sides during the pandemic, some people deciding to keep working because of the uncertainty around it, and some people, you know, packing it in early saying, I don't need this. Both of the above. The, the real story here is that this is not one size fits all anymore. It's not one age where one thing happens. Some of the people, by the way, who have um, retired, have come back into their jobs. Companies are reaching out to older workers as a solution to the labor shortage. People have retired in the sense that they've left their full-time job, but they now have a side hustle or a side gig or a second income. It's just all over the map, and all of the above are true simultaneously. You know, the most of the things that I've been reading about this are kind of, uh, you know, um, Nervous Nellies is going to be a, a catastrophe or a very a crisis, even more than a crisis that we have now for our health care system. Is, is that what you see in these numbers, Doug Norris? Well, certainly there are some challenges ahead. There are some different challenges with an older population. Uh, on the other hand, there, there are some very positive things with an older population, particularly in their ability to help their kids and grandkids out in many ways. But I do worry about the challenges ahead in terms of our uh, <clears throat> older population. Uh, when they, uh, as they get into their 80s and 90s, uh, they may need some kind of long-term care. And if you look at what happened during the pandemic to our long-term care institutions, it wasn't very pretty. And over the next 20 years, if nothing changed, we need twice as many beds as we have today. And I just don't think that's the way to go. I think we need to find better ways and different ways of caring for that older population that may need long-term care. And I think we can look to some of the Scandinavian countries for much more innovative models 
than just continuing to build the kind of nursing homes that we have today. Well, uh, I'm sure everyone agrees with you. And uh, there's a little of that happening right now in the Ontario election campaign, which is about to get officially underway. Uh, David, uh, do you think that there will be more urgency as a result of these numbers? Well, yeah, and I'd like to point out that the projection that the uh, I've seen in all the news stories is it's going to triple, the 85-plus the population is going to triple from just under 900,000 today to 2.7 million in 2050 or 2047, what that year is. 2046. Year, yeah, 24. I think that's conservative. I think they're off by maybe a half a million to a million. I think it's going to be a much greater number because there's 6.6 million Canadians today between the age of 60 and 74, just in that 14-year band, who are going to be the future 85-year-olds. If we zero out everybody above 75 today, some of them will technically be alive then, you know, in their hundreds. But if you say that the entire 85-plus population will come from today's 60 to 74-year-olds, that's 6.7 million people, um, the death rate would be 76,000 now, but let's say they're going to get older, so their death rate's going to go up. I did a little quick math and said, let's assume it's 105,000 a year for 26 years, so you lose about half of them. You're left with 3.6 million instead of 2.7 million. So it's going to be even worse if, if you want to look on the bad side. And I think that there's no chance that the people who are today 60 to 74 are going to just sit back and hope that they fix the healthcare system by then. They're going to do stuff to mitigate the risk to themselves of being stuck in that situation. And about 25% of them, not a majority, uh, have the means and will have the means to uh, buy better accommodation, hire home care workers, avail themselves of the flood of technology that's pouring into the aging in place space. So it's a mistake to assume that the rickety architecture of today is going to have to take a pipeline. I agree with my colleague here. They have to rethink everything because even if I subtract out all the wealthier people, and it's a big number, it's a million five, I'm left with two and a half million people who are going to be dependent on the system. And the system is there's no shot whatsoever of the healthcare system being able to accommodate that number. None, no chance, unless it completely uh, is reimagined from top to bottom, in my opinion. Well, and it's interesting, you know, uh, this, uh, this study is also showing dangers to the labor market, which we already have at the moment, and particularly when it comes to jobs like personal support workers, Doug. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's for sure. And we see the government reacting to that in terms of setting unprecedented high levels of immigration and even making changes uh, to temporary workers to uh, allow more of them to come into the country, I think, to fill uh, some of the kind of those kinds of jobs. And is that enough? Well, we'll have we'll have to see, uh, you know, how that uh that plays out. Certainly the immigration numbers will help keep our labor force uh, probably growing, and uh, that's a good thing. Uh, in terms of the, the kinds of skills that are needed in our long-term care facilities and for home care services, that's a whole other thing, and I think has to be looked at very, very carefully. David, uh, are we going to be able to depend on immigration to get out of this problem? Well, I think that it's a it's a very important you know leg on the stool. Obviously, I'm a big believer in what technology is going to do, but there's no scenario of you know in home robots that can replace the need for more uh, home care workers. So I think it's a help, but I think that it, it, there is going to be a, again. I say great differentiation by income and by means of who's going to be able to um, provide for themselves and what the system itself is going to be able to do. And my worries are, uh, uh, you know, with my colleague here is on the system side, I don't see the healthcare system um, 
looking at the like the total rethink that they need. I think they're incrementally doing stuff, add more here, build another X number of rooms there. But, you know, they're tinkering with the uh, the airplane while it's flying, and I think they need a redesign. Okay, guys, hang on, because we have to take a break, and we will have more on this very important topic on the other side of the break. The numbers to call, 416 Toll-free 1-866-744-740. We'll talk more about this new demographic information when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, there's a whole other side to this, the same problem, and that is the falling birth rate, and people have fewer children. People like me have no children. So given the scarcity of the kind of care that's available, uh, a lot of us are also going to experience a shortage of, you know, informal family caregivers. Where are these people going to come from? It's um, Has anybody started thinking about that, David? They have, and I also think that um, further down the road, maybe 27 years is too close, uh, but governments are also freaking out about the impact on taxation and pensions and um, being upside down on the demographic uh, uh, scale. And Doug would know way more about this than I do, but um, China's already freaking out about an upside down pyramid and a po- an absolute loss of population in the in the tens of millions of people by the end of the century, where the taxpayer is going to come from to prop up the uh, pension system and the health system when we're carrying this number of older people who are not working. So um, it's going to have implications beyond just, uh, you know, the lack of uh, family caregivers. Hmm. Um, When will we start feeling this really? How much time do we have, Doug? Well, I mean, we're, I think we're already feeling it, but, uh, I think in another decade, if you look at the, the rates of change in the various age groups, um, you know, those 70 to 74, for example, uh, increased by 30%. And that 30% is going to shift up into their 80s in another decade or so. So over the next couple of decades, that older population, 75 and over, is going to double. So we may have a few years that I hesitate to call it low growth because it's pretty high, but then it's really going to take off. And I think that's a bit of the the issue with governments sort of trying to do patchwork stuff today. But in another decade or so, when all of those baby boomers hit 85, uh, there won't be time to adjust, and we have to adjust before then. 85. Uh, so I would like to give the numbers out again, because I really would like to hear from people. We have an older audience. Uh, what do you think hearing this? You know, I bet that a lot of us haven't really thought about this that much. You know, we've maybe thought of our personal situation or our loved ones, but not about what is coming. And uh, it certainly sounds to me like there will be competition. For these resources, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Also, this information defines working age uh, as up to 64. So I'm not sure that holds water because I keep reporting on trends of people working longer than that. So I'd like to know what people think about that as well. There are a lot of people who are working well into their 70s, quite a number of them in this building, I might add. So what do you think of that? The numbers again, 416-360-0740, toll free one 866 744 740. I am talking to David Kravitz and Doug Norris. And David, is there enough to 
incentivize people for working longer given the kinds of labor shortage that labor shortages that we're looking at well i think there is a confluence of factors that promotes working longer number one um longevity means you need more money for longer and can you really uh, you know, when you were the, the model we all grew up with is you work for about 40 years to fund the retirement of about 10 years. You retired at 65. You were gone by, you know, 75, 78. And you could you could earn enough money in 40 years to pay for 10, 12 years. And now you might have to be paying for 30 years. And you, it, very few people can do that. So that's number one. You people working longer because they, they need to. Second thing is people working longer because they want to, because now the leading edge of aging are baby boomers, which was a very, you know, type A generation with a uh, strong work ethic and the belief that keep, that if you, when you keep working, it actually keeps you uh, younger because it keeps you engaged. It gives you a purpose and so on. So there's a psychological reason to want to stay on stage, as it were. And I think those factors combined do provide um, enough incentive. And I, the third point I just want to make quickly is I don't think it's a matter of redefining the age of working. I think it's a matter of redefining working, period. Is it full-time? Is it part-time? Is it blended? Is it hybrid? Is it re-entering the workforce in a completely different profession, retraining yourself? Uh, there are significant numbers of people doing all of those. And so I think you're going to get much more of a, a multifaceted um definition of work uh, that I think that's definitely already starting to happen. Well, then there are also a couple of financial things. So right now you can defer getting your Canada pension till 70, but you can't defer it beyond that, even if you're working. And the other thing, and this has been a CARP issue for a very, very long time, and that's mandatory RIF withdrawals, where you have to yep. take money out and get taxed on it, whether you need it or not. Doug, how far do you think uh, changing those things would go to ease the pressure on, you know, government finances? Well, I think I think those kinds of things need to be looked at. I, I, I fully agree with um, David's point of view in that as work arrangements become more flexible, people being able to work from home, that's going to encourage people to stay in the workforce, in the paid workforce, longer, perhaps in, in very different ways. And as a result, um, those implications, which are very often fairly negative for people who continue to work in terms of taking their their CPP or their drawing from uh, from their RIFs, uh, I think need to be looked at. Uh, I mean, it gets to be very complicated because what you decide on doing as an individual depends on how long you expect to live and uh, many complex factors, but certainly I think uh, need to be uh, looked at. Uh, David, um, how do those financial considerations play in? Well, they're, they're, they're huge. I mean, uh, I think we, uh, discussed, uh, a couple of weeks ago, JP Morgan financial advisors published their annual, uh, report to their own advisors and told them that from now on, they should assume that their retiree clients are going to live to a hundred and just make that their assumption and plan from there. And you're seeing new products. You're seeing new financial products dealing with longevity. Uh, there's an explosive growth, explosive 50% year over year in reverse mortgages because people are realizing how much uh, equity they have in these homes that they can take out uh, and stay in the home uh, to fund some of this. And I think, by the way, that will play into this whole topic of uh, uh, aging the 85 plus if they're still in their homes and they've got that kind of uh, cash, tie, uh, you know, stranded in the uh, strand is not the right word, but caught up in the home, uh, monetizable, I guess, in the home, they're going to want to get their hands on that. So the, the whole financial strategy is also diversifying into many new areas. Yeah, and I'm uh, one of the other aspects of this, uh, and uh, it's a bit of a surprise to me, is that for the very first time, millennials in Toronto have edged out baby boomers in terms of their numbers. I don't know. I don't know if that's surprising or or not, but it's a huge generation, 
And the older it's going to continue because the oldest boomers are in their mid-70s and some of them are passing away. Uh, so the boomer generation uh, isn't going to grow anymore. They've all been born, as have the millennials, but the millennials are that much younger, so their death rate is that much uh, lower. I think Doug would be much more expert on that, but that's what I see happening. Yeah, I, I, I would totally agree. And I think in, in the case of Toronto and the other big cities, I mean, what we've seen for many years are people moving out of, of the cities uh, as they start families, often for the cost of housing, and retirees moving out, you know, moving up to cottage country, for example, to live. And, well, on the other hand, you have young millennial immigrants coming in. And so that uh, shapes the balance overall. But but mortality is going to start to take its toll on the boomers over the next couple of decades, and and certainly uh, that's going to affect the size of the generation. Yeah, and um, uh, hopefully it doesn't affect the clout of the generation too no, much. The millennials will become the new old people. <laughs> yeah, that's all that's going to happen, you know. Welcome to being 60, you know. I mean, it's just going to be a different group. Oh, wait a minute. But 60 is the new 40, 30? 40, right, right. <laughs> so where does this leave us, uh, Doug Norris? Um, what, are, what would you like to leave us with on this? Well, I think uh, hopefully the numbers uh, uh, continue to, to perhaps push the the idea of uh, preparing for an older society and making many, many changes. You know, not only governments, businesses at all need to need to change with with an older population. And hopefully these numbers uh, will prompt them to perhaps accelerate some of those uh, changes and ideas. And uh, it is good to see in the Ontario election campaign uh, some promises being met, but we'll see uh, down the road. Uh, they need to be acted on uh, fairly quickly. David. I agree completely. I think that um, reports like this are helpful because they may shake people up and they may shake the government. I would be thrilled if they just had a little sidebar R&D, think tanky, skunkworksy kind of thing that said, how do we... Uh, completely redesign the healthcare system top to bottom. Keep fixing it, keep building more beds, keep trying to reduce wait times, keep recruiting more PSWs. I mean, nobody's saying stop everything till you've got the perfect blueprint, but I don't know that there's a blueprint development <laughs> function going on that's looking ahead 20 or 30 years and saying, uh, what is, what does the whole machine have to look like by then? Cause it better look very different than today. Okay, on that note, thank you so much, David Kravitz and Doug Norris. Thank you, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Okay, and again, Free For All Friday is coming up if we did not have a chance to take your call. And that is all the time we have for today. Uh, also, a reminder, we'll have budget look-aheads tomorrow, because tomorrow afternoon, the pre-election provincial budget comes down. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.